the strawberry moon and it's the strawberry super moon and that's not just me calling the moon super although I, I do call the moon super and I think it's super all the time uh, but that's you know the technical term but uh, let's let's say it's the super strawberry super moon how about that uh, and it's almost the summer solstice so we're getting lighter longer later and uh, I really like that um, but, uh, you know, you can also look at it as it's about to uh, start getting less light every day. You know, I mean, that's the other the other side of the coin, right? But uh, it's always, you know, we're always in flux. We're always moving towards something else and then, you know, back. I mean, that's, isn't that what the moon teaches us? Just waxing and waning and flowing I don't know, that's, that's what I'm thinking about at the moment. But, uh, you know, uh, I'll try not to get too, uh, too dark and rambly here, as I sometimes do. And, uh, and just say that I hope, you know, wherever you are, um, that the full moon is shining on you in its strawberry superness, and uh, that you... You have light shining in and around you um, to uh, to bring things to fruition. Things are still pretty grim out there, but I hope wherever you are and however you're doing that you can uh, find a little refuge in the next hour or so, in the violet hour, uh, with some beautiful words of music. And I am very, very excited to be sharing with you stories from the absolutely beautiful chapbook Math for the Self-Crippling by Ursula Villarreal Mora. And I'm just yeah, thrilled to be, be able to share these with you. I think you're going to love them. And uh, I've got music by the band Teething Veils. Uh, so that's a real treat. And I'm going to dedicate this episode to Mumu, a very special stuffed monkey. So uh, let's let's jump right in. Envelope first, 1953. A ring of adults holding hands, burning candles, chanting. A series of levitations visible through the window. Tia Veronica claims she and Mama witness a seance from their cousin's backyard. Inside the living room, their frumpy aunts, half-drunk uncles, parents, and strangers summoned spirits with one synchronized hum. First, an envelope floated off the table. Then the gingham tablecloth spun off in a gust. Finally, the table bobbed as if riding a cosmic wave. 
Fried chicken and white biscuits, Tia Veronica and Mama agree is what they ate for dinner that night. Thighs and a twilight game of jacks or hide-and-seek, depending on whom you believe. The levitations, Mama refutes. When asked to explain them, she shrugs. Her tightened shoulders suggest a mental ruse, a hologram of boredom.
that was Teething Veils with Sewn Hands. Origin, 1983. I crunched into a bunuelo and stared at my great-aunt Fatima and Grandma Beatrix from across the dining room table. Mid-afternoon sunlight poured through the window, causing each grain of sugar to shine like diamond dust coating my dessert. When we were your age, our mother would ask us to go outside and catch grasshoppers, Fatima began in Spanish, adjusting her oversized purple glasses. Your grandmother and I would take a tin can and return with it full of grasshoppers. Isn't that right, Beatrix? Grandma Beatrix nodded with a sly smirk, as if remembering something devious. I lifted the bunuelo and took two more bites. I had no idea in which direction the story was headed, but already I was suspicious of how it would end. Part of being a child was deciding which stories were based in fact and which were simply tales. When we gave the can to our mother, she shooed us out of the kitchen. She had spells to cast, secret spells, so we ran outside to play until we were called back. Our family spoke Spanish, and our three older brothers were learning English at school, Grandma Beatrix said. But Fatima and I wanted our own language, a code, so we created a third language. Yes, Fatima agreed with a nod, but that's a story for another day. When we returned, the grasshoppers had been transformed into silver dollars. With one coin, the whole family could eat for more than a month. Eggs were a penny, bread three cents. A dollar meant a lot of food. We would have starved if we hadn't caught the insects our mother needed. Do you understand, little girl? Finishing my bunuelo, I nodded. I was grateful for not having to forage for food or touch winged critters. My grandparents and great-aunt were saints for not requiring much of me. I was expected to feed the house cats, water the lemon tree outside with the hose, and collect the mail, but that was it. And now we're old ladies, Grandma Beatrix bellowed. We live to tell the story of how we survived. What happened when your mother died? I asked. Who turned the grasshoppers into coins? Grandma Beatrix and Fatima met eyes. It seemed to me that their cheeks twitched with answers. The truth, Grandma Beatrix nodded solemnly as she continued in Spanish, is that everyone is born knowing at least one spell. Some people know many. Others even create new ones. This was the first story and lesson they imparted to me. But over the course of our lives together, the stories multiplied until they were almost incalculable. The stories wallpapered my mind. Through them, I learned to shape myself. I dreamed and lived the stories without interruption. Alpha, Omega, Amen.
Teething Veils with The Poor Clare Monastery. Sad Girl, 1992. The very first time your parents allow you to go out by yourself, two cholas almost kick your ass. You have agreed to meet a boy for a matinee. The two of you see Chaplin in black and white, share a tub of popcorn, and kiss in the dark. The boy's face is crusted with infected pimples, but you're willing to close your eyes because being independent for half a day is a victory. After the film, you part ways with your date and exit the mall. Your parents instructed you to wait at the bus stop bench, so you sit, squinting under the sun, when a fellow Chicana appears. Her hands are deep in the pockets of khakis she paired with a white polo and black Converse sneakers. She's wearing her school uniform, you figure, on a weekend. Her obvious red lipstick and bandana signal to you that, in fact, you're face-to-face with a chola. Her exhalations enter your lungs, and you almost choke. She side-eyes you before saying, You see my friend over there? In a McDonald's parking lot a dozen feet away, a husky chola flicks two switchblades while glaring at you. Every cell in your body dilates. She thinks you were looking at her funny the first Chola says. Your initial fear is your teeth, but they may jump you in unison to razor blade your face. Years ago, you naively assumed you'd escape the barrio, but the barrio returned to find you. It's inconsequential that you now attend a private school on a merit scholarship. Nah, you insist. I wasn't looking at nobody. Your use of a double negative is a deliberate type of Hail Mary. You sure, sad girl? the bully asks, tilting her head. You nod. The cholas exchange a conspiratorial glance, a synchronicity you will remember forever. This gesture means you get to keep your original face, that your dentist will never be part of this equation. It will haunt you that you were chosen and spared at random. When you finally escape into your New England college dream, you'll regard the memory of that afternoon like a fossil, examining its vertebrae under a microscope. For your 20th birthday, you'll treat yourself to a 14-carat gold nameplate necklace, oversized gold bamboo hoops, and dragon blood lipstick. From the neck up, you'll pattern yourself after your tormentors, thrilled by your transformation, and struck by how very long it's been since you were a sad girl.
Teething Veils with Between a Niche and a Ditch. The Posture of a Gentleman. She hates it. Her stuffed animal is aging. The day she and her husband bought him near Trevi Fountain in Rome, the monkey's russet fabric was taut. Its alert features exemplified the mark of craftsmanship. It never crossed her mind that the monkey would age and wrinkle, or that the cotton stuffing or that the cotton stuffing would shift and disintegrate. When she leaves her apartment, she props him up with pillows and crosses his legs, mimicking the posture of a gentleman. She's painstaking about keeping him out of the sun, away from cigarette smoke, off the floor, and free of lint. As a child, she regularly visited garage sales with her great-aunt Fatima and Grandma Beatrix, 
On strangers' lawns, she would gaze upon mountains of spoiled and forsaken stuffed animals, each matted with toddler drool or disfigured by partially melted jolly ranchers. The mounds of toys reeked of fevers, sad houses, and junk food. By age six, she had trained herself to avert her eyes from the piles, praying she wouldn't gag in public. Her husband teases her now, says she'll have a nervous breakdown if anything were to happen to the monkey. Something is happening to the monkey, imperceptibly, day by day. His football-shaped head has begun to tilt southward. His parallel legs are hollowing out. Her devotion is consuming him, one thread at a time. However wide The skin so pallid The mouth so dry From glares that gleam Across the face Of pinhole ears That know no stride to watch the star Teething Veils with The Well Ran Dry. Math for the Self-Crippling. When my day is irrevocably ruined, I drive by my childhood house. Painted evergreen and cream, the exterior has shifted faces like waves have rearranged coastal sands. To maim myself, I pretend this address is still mine. This is the plot of land where I learned to read, 
where we were burglarized, where my parents and I sang happy birthday three times a year, where my mother tripped down a dozen stairs, where I alchemized our lives into poetry, and where my father cursed our debt. I hold on like a Doberman to a museum of us. The tunnel of my teens could not fathom strangers gathered around our fireplace or children scowling into our bathroom mirrors. An anonymous family mimes their life through open curtains. Projections of the unfamiliar return me to the driver's seat. This house never taught me how to let go. My parents and I are still singing, reading, screaming, writing, falling. We have not yet unhung the photos from the walls or ripped the sheets off the beds. I am still hunched over the dinner table, fretting over math. Teething Veils with Ruby's Restaurant. Husband in Translation. He returns every evening at 6 p.m. and asks if I've found a job yet. 
I have a part-time job, but it isn't enough. My husband expects me to work in a respectable office and wear high heels every day. He has a fantasy of meeting at a pub for happy hour, both of us exhausted and full of work drama. Our twin martinis escape valves, long-stemmed sour tonics. The climate in the apartment escalates until I dread 6 p.m., the question, my shrug that betrays indifference. I applied to two more jobs today, I sometimes volunteer. When you're looking for a job, applying becomes your job. Why are you not treating it like a job? Well, I explain, because I work part-time and often marinate chicken when I get home so we can eat dinner together. After a string of identical weeks, my dreams become strange theater soliloquies. On stage, I reflect and rage, a blinding spotlight tracking my every step. Our bills bulk into bullies, so I continue to apply for more office jobs. Positions to answer phones, update databases, interact with professors, delegates, or philanthropists. I write impeccable cover letters, brimming with enthusiasm, yet no one calls. Occasionally, I receive emails informing me that company name is no longer pursuing my candidacy. Such notices elate and panic me. This means the road ahead is endless. More applications, cover letters, hours robbed from my day. Throughout my life, I've had many full-time jobs, though never in an office. My best position was as a museum curator in Buenos Aires. As the only fully bilingual employee, I was often intercepted and asked to translate. Question. How do you say tacones? Answer. High heels. Question. How do you say un marido fastidioso? Answer. Annoying husband. Question. How do you say dejame en paz? Answer. Get off my back. Just howls at the moon The branches toss their leaves And cover up the heart Out of respect Your bedroom's light shines down Route one, you wave your hands And fold your thumbs Dinner's on the stove with Percocet Every ragbag has their day And I had mine and threw it all away Stood in my own way You'll read my obituary Printed without commentary How I live hinges on Who I am to you Touched by the sun within a weeping willow crow. 
Teething Veils with the Eulogist. Fatima, mid-stride, circa 1988. Maybe I was ten when I snapped the unfocused photograph. The rectangular image bears no date, only the word Kodak slanted across the back. The subject is my great-aunt Fatima, mid-stride on the sidewalk in front of my grandparents' house. Her facial expression is neutral, and a plastic bag hangs from her wrist. After years of living with my grandparents, Fatima moved into a subsidized apartment down the block. Every morning, she arrived as the newspaper was being tossed onto the lawn and returned home after Dan Rather gave the evening news. Summer mornings, she and I crocheted potholders while watching The Price is Right. We folded laundry, fed my grandmother's cats, and red paperbacks purchased at rummage sales. Midway through July, Fatima suffered a heart attack in the living room while writing a letter to the mayor. She was distressed over the rising price of bus fare. After paramedics revived her on our rug, she propped herself up against the couch and chided the cats circled around, asking which of them wanted spankings. The photograph is a grainy side profile of her on the sidewalk en route back to her apartment. I was frantic when I rushed outside with my slim 110 camera. I collected every detail about Fatima because her heart couldn't be trusted beneath her crocheted blankets at night. Intuition told me I would outlive everyone. Fatima, my grandparents, Dan Rather, the cats. I would be my own house. Authorities upholding the only things that. 
Teething Veils with To Have and To Hold Through Sophia Loren Glasses My mother and I were driving past an exclusive neighborhood called the Elms when I asked how I would know if I had slipped into insanity. Two months before, when I turned 14, my consciousness had expanded into a thousand-floor hotel. Inside every room, I encountered duplicates of myself, all devious masterminds. You're not crazy, she said, shaking her head. I can tell. The open windows of her tiny Toyota welcomed a hot breeze that ballooned her white blouse and made her tan arms resemble hot dogs. But is there a line? I asked. In my mind, I shuffled over a black and white checkered floor, a human chess piece in chunky black men's Oxfords. I jerked myself over the board, puppeting myself from black square to black square. I can't say if it's a line, but I know you're overthinking things again, Mija. I imagined my mother massaging Grandma Beatrix's knuckles while explaining my whereabouts to her in Spanish. She's locked up in an institution with others like her. From behind her gigantic Sophia Loren glasses, my grandmother's eyes were certain to flutter with shock. I jittered in my car seat. All my dreams lately spackled of black magic, and upon waking, I stayed convinced I was cloaked in curses. It was clear I had to glue myself together for others. I'd hunt for swaths of normalcy at my private school, graft new veins into my central nervous system, present myself without fracture or blemish. Do you have homework? my mother asked. Her attempt at a distraction soured the air, so I didn't answer. Don't tell me you really think you're crazy, she said, turning for the first time to study my mood. Her face echoed a soap opera. Her lipstick faded into last week. We had been driving in the same direction for entirely too long, and our destination eluded me. Most crazy people don't even realize they're crazy. You know that, right? My mother mumbled, holding a conversation with herself. I imagined myself being escorted out of my high school in a straitjacket, a hundred peers witnessing my unraveling, all of them too stunned to snicker or attempt a joke. My mother's eyes darted up toward the rearview mirror. I'm sometimes on a chessboard, I muttered, and it doesn't look like I'm going to win. We maintained a speed of 55 miles per hour and drove for four more years without ever stopping. Ring my bell and I'll awaken From earth and home to missing children The flags don't flood it Rolled off the hyacinths I'm off to see the Baltimore bloom maker I was tossed across the room I hit the chair with a tune Winnowed down to natural resources I'm off to 
to meditate with the monks in the mountains. We prepare for uninterrupted silence by feasting on piercing piano sonatas and inwardly laughing at the joke that most lapsed Catholics are open to Buddhism. San Quentin Prison gleams to our left as we near our destination, and the San Francisco Bay quivers platinum around us. The drive up the mountain is precarious, so we yield for bicyclists. We are considerate of skulls coated in helmets, bare legs, human muscle versus automotive machinery. In the Zen center, we bow to each other, sit, and concentrate on our breathing. Our chests expand to envelop everyone in the room. Our chests contract to self-forgive. After the gong is struck, we file out to sip tea, change shoes, and begin the trek to Moira Beach. Poison ivy and daunting inclines greet us at the start of the trail. The hike is Herculean and tests us for hours. We murmur complaints, but the vistas romance our retinas. Miles later, the mountain begins to slope downward. The rocks beneath us are loose, a foundation unraveling unto itself. We angle ourselves sideways to descend smoothly and are thrust into a frigid curtain of wind. On level terrain, we bundle ourselves in pashminas before unlacing our sneakers. We trudge barefoot over the black speckled sand and weave our way through paddleball games. Children prance around us half-naked in pastel bikinis and trunks, immune to the cold. Along the coast, we negotiate our bodies like meter markers. We momentarily forget that one of us is ill, that this entire day was prescribed as medicine. Glass waves lap over our bare feet. 
an icy rush of grainy sediment. We lock eyes like we did at the beginning, before our words tangled and thorned us. One spell is complete. Teething Veils with I'm Waiting for My Love to Sleep. Well, I guess it's time for a little mazé. And on the menu today is a snack size interview with our featured music, Teething Veils. Teething Veils began in 2006 in Washington, D.C., playing very occasional live shows at places such as the Montgomery College Planetarium and their own living room at 611 Florida Ave. They've released five LPs, Valorio in 2013, Constellations in 2014, Sea and Sun in 2017, Canopy of Crimson in 2020, and Have and to Hold, uh, which is coming out this year, 2022, and a seven-inch single dinner date in 2015. 
Uh, and they released all of those through the artist-run DC and Santa Fe-based collective Eche Records. They've played live with audiences in 37 U.S. states, plus the District of Columbia and two Canadian provinces. The band members also play or have played in the Antiques, Damsel, Kahutek, the O6, Parlor Scouts, Prom Concussion, Seamstresses, Silo Halo, and Void Vision. They are very busy. Uh, and band members are Kevin Buckholt on drums, Hester Doyle, cello and voice, Craig Garrett, bass guitar, Adrena Marie, violin and voice, and Greg Sviddle, guitar, piano, and voice. And uh, most of the songs uh, you've been listening to are from their new album coming out uh, July 23rd of this year. It's called To Have and To Hold. Um, it's going to be on CD and digital formats on July 23rd, and vinyl LPs will be available around January 1st, 2023, uh, which is not really that long away. Uh, we're, we're basically almost halfway through 2022, so I mean, not to jump ahead to winter because, um, you know, summer hasn't even officially started yet, uh, but, you know, at least when winter rolls around, we'll, we'll have something to look forward to. Uh, so... Anyway, uh, Greg Spittle was kind enough to answer a few questions for the Violet Hour, uh, so I will share those with you now. 1. What is your earliest memory of a cigarette? I remember my aunts and uncles in Nutley, New Jersey, sharing smokes and talking for hours. 2. If teething vows were a fairy tale, which one would it be and why? I'd like to strive to be like Cinderella Liberator, as told by Rebecca Solnit, for her autonomy, resourcefulness, and thoughtfulness. 3. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? Also, where did the name Teething Vales come from? I'm always thinking about songs as I go about the day, and I try to record them or write them down frequently along the way. I'll sketch out the ones that are for teething veils and share with the band, and we'll get together and play, which gives them their form. I named the band Teething Veils when I was looking at two wall pieces by Marisol, both self-portraits. In one, she has a veil of clumped hair. In the other, she has closed eyes and fangs for teeth. I thought of how she masterfully steered what she revealed or concealed through her work, like a movable veil. I was also struck by how she used the teeth in her work, as tools for self-nourishment, as well as protection from predators. The way that she approached art-making was how I wanted to approach music-making. 4. What are your five favorite words associated with elegy? Memory, eternal, scroll, heaven, star. With tooth? Painting, sustenance, bite, corner, sharp. With wound? Open, stitch, needle, thread, time. 5. Please describe your current obsessions as a weather forecast. Showers of sunlight through heated clouds. On then the bonus question, uh, Hester Doyle was kind enough to answer. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? I would be a narwhal. I have a thick winter coat of blubber, and I'm frequently mistaken for a unicorn. Well, 
I love narwhals and unicorns, uh, and I love teething bells. Uh, so thank you so much for, for sharing your music and thoughts in the Violet Hour. And folks listening, you can check out more of their work and buy their music at teethingveils.bandcamp.com. You can also find out more about them at veilsofteeth.com. And again, they have a new album coming out, To Have and To Hold, on July 23rd. So check out teethingbells.bandcamp.com. Miss Mousie, is that a bucket of water? It is, Mr. Bear. Now, I know that you have a very anti-bath stance, um, and I respect that. Uh, as a as a bear of a certain age, uh, you know, I, I realize water can um, uh, is not always uh, a bear's a stuffed bear's best friend. Um, but um, foot baths. I mean, I know you're against, you know, bath baths, but a foot bath is fantastic. So, you know, I thought, um, I thought maybe we would have, um, we'd have a little spa day and do some foot baths. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that, Miss Mousie. Uh, you know, uh, me and water. I mean, usually, usually it's ixnay on the otter way. Um, I know, Mister Bear, but. It's so hot out, and, uh, you know, the fastest way to hydrate, uh, short of an IV, is a bath. And even if you, um, you know, don't have a bathtub to do a whole bath, um, you know, a foot bath is a fantastic way to hydrate. Uh, It's also a great way to relax. Um, It's a great way to deliver herbs for, for lots of things. Well, that's uh, interesting. Like what? Well, um, you can have, um, put things in like garlic and thyme and oregano and bee balm. Uh, those, uh, those kind of plants are, are great if you're, uh, if you have athlete's foot or fungal infections, something like that. They have great, uh, antimicrobial, um, properties, uh, to, to help fight that. And they're also great if you're just, you know, fighting off a cold or, or something and your your immune system needs a little extra boost. Um, those are all terrific allies for that. Um, I mean, garlic thyme tea, that's, you know, my, my go-to when I'm coming down with a, a little something-something. But, you know, you can, you can drink the tea or um, do the foot bath or both. Oh, yeah, but just don't drink the foot bath. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Bear, of course. You know, you can have something relaxing like lavender and hops. You know, that can might put you right to sleep. Um, or something refreshing like peppermint. Uh, chamomile's lovely. Uh, or you could go with, you know, roses because they smell so beautiful. Um, and they're also just, you know, cooling and lovely. Like, uh, rose water is, uh, it's just so refreshing, uh, really anytime. Um, 
but it's, you know, terrific if you have a sunburn or if you had a, a hot, itchy rash or bug bites. Um, it can help, you know, calm, calm all of that, um, that kind of redness and inflammation you get. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, they're just, um, well, people love roses for, for a good reason. They're, they're so beautiful. They have so much to offer. I mean, there are just so many choices. Um, uh, just, you know, look around your yard or your garden or your tea or spice cabinet and, you know, pretty much, pretty much anything would make a nice foot bath. Um, and throw in some Epsom salts. Um, oh, that's just, oh, it's so nice, soothing the muscles and, uh, but just, it feels delightful, Mr. Bear. Um, you know, uh, I thought we could, uh, we could take our little, um, you know, you don't need anything fancy for it either, you know? You can just get, like, a, like a dishwashing basin or something, um, and, uh, you know, just anything that's, you know, big enough to, to put your feet in, and, um, make up a strong tea, and, uh, throw in some Epsom salts, and, uh, yeah, and just, uh, sit, sit and soak. I thought we could, um, you know, take, uh, set up these little foot baths outside and look at the moon and, uh, eat some strawberries. Uh, that's, that's tempting, Miss Mousy. Um, despite my, uh, despite my, my bath, uh, phobia, um, I, I might be intrigued by this, uh, foot, foot bath. Yeah, there's, um, I was reading about this uh, French herbalist, um, Maurice Messager, and uh, he was famous for uh, working, uh, I think, pretty much only with hand and foot baths, and he helped a lot of people. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, so, I don't know, I thought I would, I thought I would uh, experiment more. Um, you know, lemon balm and elderflower, that would be lovely for um, kind of cooling off, releasing heat. Um, but uh, it's, it's true, I mean, uh, people forget that, um, that your skin is an organ and, um, you know, everything you put on your skin uh, is is going through it, um, which is why, you know, it's a good idea to take a look at, you know, what kind of products and skincare, etc., you know, what's, what's in it. Like, if you don't want to, you know, put it in your mouth, you really don't want to put it on your skin. And you really, really don't want to put it on your lawns, okay? I would just like, again, to have a, a PSA about please don't use Roundup or pesticides or chemicals or other things to grow your stupid, boring, green monoculture lawns, okay? Just let things be. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I hear you, Miss Mousy. Uh, seems to be one of our favorite topics, but, uh, you know, it's hard. You, you walk around and you see all these humans doing all these, you know, ridiculous, terrible things like dumping Roundup on their lawns. So, uh, you know, uh, if you didn't know it was bad, now you know. Um, so... Well, Mr. Bear, I read this really interesting thing, um, about, um, that enraged bears um, calm themselves down by chewing on oregano. I was just wondering um, how you feel about oregano. 
Oh, Miss Mousy, are you saying I'm enraged? No, no, I was just curious if you'd ever heard that or what you thought about it or if you like oregano or find it calming. Uh, well, I love oregano, as you know. Uh, I put it in pretty much everything I cook and uh, love to shake it all over pizza. Uh, and I like to nibble on the, the leaves in the garden. They're very spicy. Uh, oregano steam, you know, clear the sinuses right out. But uh, calming... Well, you know, when you, you get things uh, warmed up and moving like that, uh, that can uh, uh, relax a lot of tension. Uh, so maybe, um, you know, maybe it's uh, physically calming like that. And, you know, when we're physically calmer, uh, often we're emotionally calmer, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that makes a lot of sense, Miss Mousie. Um well, tell you what, you've uh, you've convinced me. I'm gonna I'm gonna try uh, one of these foot baths, and uh, let's um, how about uh, oregano and lavender and hops? Ooh, that's a very um, bold combination, Mister Bear. I like it. It's kind of herb de Provence meets soporific. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's let's try it out. And, you know, um, I just want you to remind your listeners that I am just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, and they should always do their own research. But foot baths are great. They're, you know, uh, a really simple, easy thing uh, to do, and uh, you can get a lot, of, a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, oh, yeah. This this is great, Miss Mousy. I, I gotta say, I'm starting to feel pretty relaxed. How long do you uh, usually soak for? Well, I like to go for, you know, a good 15-20 minutes. Uh, that's a that's a nice target. Um, you know, you don't want to go too long, you know, uh, that can actually dehydrate you, you know, if you're in the bath for an hour. But, uh, uh, yeah, 15-20 minutes. Um, uh, how do you like the strawberries? Oh, they're delicious. Mr. Bear, did you know that uh, strawberries are not really berries? Oh, I did know that, actually. Um, did you know that they have their seeds on the outside? Oh, uh, I knew that, too. Mr. Bear, you know fun. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. And that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for spending a little time in the Violet Hour with me, this uh, Strawberry Supermoon. I hope you loved the work of Ursula Villarilla Mora. You can pick up her book, Math for the Self-Crippling, through small press distribution at spdbooks.org. 
And you can find out more about Ursula and read lots more of her brilliant writing at her website, UrsulaVillarealaMora.com. That's U-R-S-U-L-A-V-I-L-L-A-R-R-E-A-L-M-O-U-R-A.com. So thanks again to Ursula for letting me share her work. And thanks to the Teething Vales for sharing their music. Uh, pick up their new album to have and to hold on July 23rd. And as a parting gift, as always, I'll leave you with an oracle. Uh, last time we started uh, a new a new oracle to work from. So uh, Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth uh, is the new oracle. So I'm going to flip through. Put my paw down on a page, and your oracle for the strawberry supermoon is... As the conductor waved his arms, he molded the air like handfuls of soft clay, and the musicians carefully followed his every direction. I'll read that once more. As the conductor waved his arms, he molded the air like handfuls of soft clay, and the musicians carefully followed his every direction. So interpret that as you please. Um, and that's, that's it. So uh, I'll be back with you later in the month. Until then, uh, take care, happy solstice, and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.